Hey guys, Ryan DeMint, Chasing Happiness Podcast. I hope you guys are having a wonderful day. Today is the very first episode that we're putting on Restream. So guys, give us feedback. We have a wonderful guest in Matt Davis. Matt Davis is not your typical attorney. He doesn't like golf. He thinks <laughs> other attorneys have some serious issues. And we'll talk about it. But the word of the day that we're going to use is stodgy. Or strategy. I gotta be able to I gotta be able to pronounce it correctly. But I came across Matt through a matching service and his profile just spoke to us and spoke to me and I needed to bring him on. Matt, welcome to the show. Hey, thanks. I am excited to be here and just chat and see uh what we can come up with brilliant today. So I know you've been practicing for thirty plus years or close to thirty years. But what got you into the industry initially? <laughs> okay, so I I was actually a pretty good college student, which after my performance in high school was really remarkable to my parents. And I, I thought I was going to go be a history professor. And my dad, in sort of his coarse but direct way, sat me down and he said, listen, let me make this real clear to you. I will pay for you to go to OU law school or you're off the family tit. And <laughs> I mean, he was just kind of that blunt. And I, I was 21 years old and I had a history degree. And I said, dad, I, I think I'll go to OU law school. And I did. And, uh, I was there actually, those of you old enough to remember, Anita Hill was our contracts professor. And wow. Sec yeah. Second year of law school, all the Clarence Thomas stuff happened. And the whole law school was just a circus for two, three weeks. And uh, yeah, that is literally how I got into law. And I think I'd always, I know I come from a professional family. I, uh, I, I really come from a farm stock, so to speak. And my great grandfather presaged Willie Nelson and told all his kids to become doctors, lawyers, and such. And there was, so I, I come from a family of doctors. So, so I, it, it, I, it was natural for me. So I know what OU stands for, but what the oh. audience potentially not, I know where you're at. So why don't you tell everybody what yeah. OU is? Yeah, that's Oklahoma. So university of Oklahoma, which is down in Norman, I live in Enid which is, is my hometown. I, I came back here after deciding not to be a Washington lawyer. So I, I tell my Arizona friends, I know you're there. That's like living in Flagstaff, right? You, you, you have to have a point of reference. <laughs> well, Flagstaff is about a three hour drive north of me. And it's, uh, yes, that's a point of reference, but at the end of the day, we all have geography issues, so we'll deal with it. Uh, with you being an attorney for so long, we've had a great conversation prior to, and you have a great sense of humor, not stuffy like a typical attorney. What gets you through? First of all, let's start your journey. You went to law school because the parents said you'll be off the, the tit if you don't. What transitioned after that and what, how did your career play out? And then we'll get into what you're currently well, doing today. I, I thought I was going to be a, a Washington lawyer. And I, I went and got a master's degree at Cornell in basically energy economics. And then I went to work for Department of Energy in DC 
And that was, now there's something interesting there because even back in 94, I got hired in the secretary's office and then I quickly got shipped to geothermal because I didn't like the idea when they said, we're going to turn all of America to renewable energy by 2004. So this was 28 years ago now. And I'm like, guys, this just isn't going to happen. But by the way, that's what we're living right now. And it's not working very well. I still think we can do it, which we can't. Would be nice, but we can't. Anyway, so I was in DC for a couple of years and I thought I was going to stay there. I thought I would just have a career practicing energy law. And I, um, one day I had lunch with a cousin of mine, 10 years older than me, similar career path, literally worked for a Senator like I had, and then he went to Kansas law and I, I walked out of there and I was looking around those buildings or 10 stories, DC, and I was like, man, I just don't want to do this. And I called my girlfriend who is now my wife. She was a TV producer in LA. And I said, Hey, let's move back to our hometown and have a bunch of kids. And 26 years later, here we are. And <laughs> I think we have five kids. It's hard to keep a steady count. And how many of the kids are attorneys? Zero, zero. Now the oldest wow. one's just 25. I just call them by unit numbers. Cause it's easy to remember unit two. Yeah. Maybe she'll go to law school <laughs> three, probably. And then four. He's not academic. I don't think he'll, but five was talking about going to law school last night. She's 12. So she's, she's my little Ethiopian baby. She's a piece of work. I'll tell you what. So do you want any of your kids to become attorneys and grow up and be one? It's interesting. Law is a very difficult and challenging and stressful profession, particularly for the attorneys that really care about their clients and there's some that don't and that that's goes across the professions. I do think law attracts a lot of people with unsavory attitudes and a, a lot of obnoxious characters. I know I went to school with them <laughs> for the last 25, 30 years and I, it would be good, but it, and I, I practiced law here in my hometown for 20 years, just county seat law practice, um, doing a lot of family law, criminal law, just taking care of my clients. And that's pretty rewarding. And the other thing too, is the, if, if you come to a smaller city and you show up and work hard, you can make a really good living and it stands out really quickly. And the bar, the, the attorneys tend to be pretty collegial. And if you don't behave yourself and play nice, so to speak, you can play tough, uh -huh. but if you don't play fair or you're just a jerk or obnoxious, you get treated like a dog. And there's a few attorneys here that everybody just treats like crap because that's what you're going to get back from when word gets around. So I, I've got to ask the obvious question. Why you said it earlier is why do you have these type of characters that are in your profession that are just <laughs> jerks and really don't well, care and, and really seem like they're a notch above everybody else. Yeah. A law license is a license to be that you can get in litigation. And I had, I don't really go to court very frequently. I literally had to put on a suit 
two days ago, and I was really shocked. Yeah, <laughs> a year because I, I had a midlife crisis and started the law firm, so I I mainly run the law firm. I have just a few clients left, and this guy he's setting hearings without calling me, even though I'm sending him emails going, "Hey, if we're going to set a hearing, please give me a call so that we can do it." together so that we don't have to reschedule. This guy set two hearings without calling me just to be a jackass. And I'm copying the judge in bitching about it. And the judge is paying attention to the fact that he's just being intentionally discourteous to be an ass. And then is just mocking me and smirking about it. And there's just people that act that way. And they think that, oh, we'll go hide behind the profession to just be jerks. And, and I think there's a selection bias because they can get away with it practicing law. And by the way, I know some lawyers that are just horrible that way. And there, there is a slice of the public that thinks that having a lawyer just acts like a jackass is effective representation. And no, it, it just, it runs up the cost and, yep. and, and it's, it's horrible. And now the, now the funny thing is there's one of these guys and I have said the only thing worse than being on the other side of a case with them is having them on your side of the case. Wow. Because this one particular jerk, I had to try a jury trial against Bank of America and it was just horrible horrible working with that guy. We had aligned clients. So they're just there and yeah, there's a selection bias for it. It just seems like there's a larger percentage of them in the law industry. And it's sad. You're right. When you have that type of an attorney on your side or even against you, it runs the bill up because ultimately it just causes more trouble. And then the billable hours go up been there, done that. And at a point in my life, I too wanted to go to law school, but then I thought, man, I can't be that type of person. It's just not who I, it's not how I'm wired. I, yeah. I want to do things fairly. And unfortunately you don't have to do it all that often. You, but most of the attorneys you work with, and, and by the way, in a smaller market, you know who they are in a bigger market, you got to wait until if the other side is a jerk or it's, it's causing trouble because yeah, the best way to handle the case is to have the lawyers work together to efficiently resolve it. And yeah, absolutely. I just got a really nice one done. This was interesting. I mean, I was fighting with the law firm out of South Texas. The case ultimately ended up in arbitration in Florida. And, and this, is the one, this is the one we talked about on our pre-call, wasn't it? Where the guy was being a real uh, a-hole to you? No, because these were women lawyers. Ah, these, okay. these are, go for it. I love this story. I'll love to hear a story. Yeah, no, and these, these were women lawyers and, and we were just hard at it. We were just thrashing each other and, and politely throwing all sorts of punches. And at the end of the day, we got to the settlement table and did a mediation with one of the Houston judges and we settled it. And the judge was absolutely astonished. He's like, you guys just settled that case in two hours. And that was a pretty big case. 
And I said, yeah. And I said, you know, well, Rhonda and I've been, we know where we all stand and we know that we'll size each other up and we know somebody's going to lose and it could be others. And, but at the end of that, I, we were circulating all the settlement paperwork between our clients. And I, I said in my email, I didn't mind saying it in front of my client, which is a big national corporation. I said, props to you guys, because you fought hard and you fought fair. And by the way, call me because I need some local representation. <laughs> and and on, on a, a particular issue and my clients that this was one of the, I was a Houston manager and he knows that cause we've worked together a long time and he's, oh yeah, we want when you're being the upper level counsel, we want to know who the real good, hard fighting, but fair lawyers are because those are who we want you hiring to help us out in particular. So can you also back up in that story about the younger attorneys that you were fighting against in Texas? I think it was Austin or Dallas. Do you remember that one? Yeah, yeah not more woman. I want to hear that story because you were just starting to go back and forth with them, but you want, you didn't finish it up. So I was, I'm interested to see how that turned out. Well, what I think, you know, there's, okay, this look, I'm Gen Z. So let's do just some intergenerational thrashing while we're at it. <laughs> you can't go boomer to me because I'm Gen Z. Okay. And, and, but by the way, I, I kind of joke because, you know, I'm an Oki and we have a little brother complex to all texts. Right. You know, yes. Texans are, you know, they are not aware that we exist, but we're, we have a rivalry going with them. They're not aware. And, and I, I joked out joke. There's when you really want to get deal with somebody that's difficult. It's a Texas millennial lawyer. That's like the trifle. <laughs> right. And, uh, and anyway, this guy just kept picking a fight with me and I'm like, dude, I have. I've represented this company for 16 years. I have tried this case hundreds of times and you're serious. You are serious. You are about to get your butt handed to you so bad. And he's not work. And he's making all these ridiculous arguments, trying to get us for what we call, uh, in the law business, incidental or consequential damages, which is, which means in, in short form that Somehow these are like long, far removed damages. Oh, we couldn't do our production because you breached contract. I'm like, first of all, we didn't breach contract and that has nothing to do with your production. And even more importantly, dingbat, there's a, <laughs> there's a clause in the contract that says each party agrees to waive incidental or consequential damages. And this moron is picking a fight. And by the way. This is a huge national firm that is billing their clients three times more per hour for their senior partner or for the partner who's my vintage. Okay. We're peers at the bar. She's billing three times more than I am. And a five year out associate is billing twice as much as I am. Right. Wow. Yeah. It was so obnoxious. And ultimately we tried that case and. I ran the numbers on them. I got everything I asked for, but in the middle of all that, everybody had attorney's fees claim and their attorney's fees claim was for twice as much as what ours is. 
and I had two attorneys try the case. And that was pretty abusive. And it was really stupid advice to their client because after they paid the attorney's fees, the cost, the interest, they probably paid three or four times what we would have settled the case for. So I guess I got to ask the question, is that just the large entity or their client just not caring and not doing the due diligence or it's just flat out stupidity? It was just, it was just stupid. And they think, oh, some big law firm is gonna, it's a big national firm. And they, that some people think that's just really effective to have client law firms like that. And there's a place for them in, in some big corporate representation, but we fight with them all the time. I know who all the big law firms are in all the markets that we operate in, and it doesn't phase us. It's constant fight with those guys. But the only people that win in these type of battles are the attorneys because they're getting yeah. paid. Yeah, absolutely. absolutely. So I got to ask the question and then we'll get into your midlife crisis. I think that's a great conversation too, is if you're in one of these types of situations and you're not a big corporation, how does one effectively somewhat manage their costs when it comes to these type of situations? When I say this is, and I'll give you an example. I mean, I used to own a construction company and yeah. the operator, we were part owners and the operator basically had some issues. And so we basically said, we're going to divorce you. And that meant legal proceedings and so forth. He decided to go hire a big name firm, which was trying to run up the bill. I have a firm that's more boutique like yourself that makes sense and, and just wanted to get done in, let's call it a day. His attorney had to get his billable hours in. So he was trying to run up the bill and then stick us with the numbers. And I said, no, that's not how it's going to work. We had to go back and forth to get that done. But ultimately, lit it. we didn't have to go to trial, but we were able to you know, get the judge to agree. How do you... Is there any way to play that in life and business? Because it just, it becomes stupid. Yeah. Yeah. There's a variety of strategies. Get the judge to order mediation or, and that's good. We are a big fan of arbitration and arbitration short form is private court and that, and so a lot of our operating agreements and whatnot that we write for our clients will have arbitration clause clauses. Jamie's my right hand and paralegal office manager. She's, you, know, you get the idea. And uh -huh. we, we got most of what we do anymore is arbitrations. And we ended up in district court. That's when I was talking about having to put on a suit because somebody was trying to weasel out of the arbitration. And man, we were just like, this is so tedious. We're subpoenaing witnesses. We're tracking them down and we're and filing all these motions and this and that. And I'll tell you what, arbitration proceedings can be so fast and you just, you don't have all this big discovery and I mean, I'll try a half million dollar case in arbitration and maybe have to answer 10 discovery questions instead of 30 and put up with days of depositions. That's nice. And we're good at it and we move it fast. Arbitrations. A, a good idea that bottom line is there's a variety of strategies and, or just ignore them a lot of the time when somebody <laughs> in obnoxious, but sometimes you can't yeah. actually have got a case pending up in Nebraska and the other lawyer just 
will file anything and everything. And he's, he's just obnoxious. And I, without it's the case is coming in stages and I tried it in Omaha a couple of years ago, went all the way to the Nebraska Supreme court. After that, we won and now we've got a hearing and he just, he's like the energizer bunny of obnoxiousness. And the, again, the only people are winning are the attorneys in this and it's, yeah. so it's crazy. It's, I can and get on a box on that. Oh yeah. And I'm having an answer to my managing attorney out of Boston on that. And, and he gets it. I'm like, look, this is, and he looks at the file and he's like, I see what's going on. You're not the one filing all the motions like now. So let's get into your life story. You have a midlife crisis and you say that you're going to start a law firm. Yeah, that's, it's kind of joking and not, but that's what happened. I was ultimately had a really sophisticated marketing strategy in that I was not in the phone book and I didn't have a web page, and I was just practicing <laughs> out of my house. I had this big spare room. And I you know I had a, a, a book of clients that just kept coming back to me. And, but I did have one client that was 40% of my business. That's not healthy. That's, that's a real vulnerability. I got five kids at home and I'm the sole breadwinner of the family. That's a really bad place to be when you have zero marketing acumen. And I just didn't have to have it. Mm -hmm. And I incidentally ran into a group called how to manage a small law firm and they're a law firm coaching company. And, and I really am grateful to them. And they, I went to one of their conferences and they said, Hey, why don't you start a business law firm. Ultimately, they said, well, don't you start a law firm? I said, okay. Then I talked to some people, other lawyers, and I was like, okay. And started coaching with these guys. And they said more about business law. I, I taught it at the college than any of the people we work with. Why don't you start a business, small business law firm? And I said, I'd love to, let's do it. And what are we up to? 12 or 13 attorneys. We're about to hire again. And we're in this small market and we just went to Oklahoma city. So let's go, which is hour and a half away. And we started growing there. And then we said, let's go to Tulsa, which is hour and a half away. Then we said, let's go to Wichita, which is an hour and a half away. And then Kansas city and Dallas. And we just learned how to operate spread out. And we learned how to hire great lawyers that are problem solvers, not problem bringers that really had up the skill set and the passion to help small business people. As we say, our first core value is believe and protect their dreams. And it's really fun. It's really rewarding to, to see these businesses grow and prosper and try and keep them out of trouble. And that's uh, one refreshing and two, not very often heard from an attorney or a firm. Yeah. The. In law school, we are taught to deal with issues, and that means deal with problems. And I come at things maybe a little bit differently. My mother, who was the only woman in her med school class, then became a, she ended up in St. Louis doing her residency. And then she and my dad both came back here to our hometown and mom was you know, she did a lot of surgery for an OBGY. I think you could say a lot of surgery. Specifically, <laughs> stayed out of, I stayed out of medicine because my mother used to, she always worked with us. 
She'd <laughs> home, we'd be having dinner and she'd say stuff like, I took a tumor out of a woman today about the size of that roast beef. <laughs> like, oh, mom. And yeah, I was just graphic about it. And, but she was in the 70s on the cutting edge of breast cancer screening. Okay, let's, as doctors, as professionals, let's get ahead of the problems. What a novel idea. And that, that idea stuck with me. And it, I, I think it's really important. And then working with my clients, I've got these clients. As a matter of fact, we're meeting here in a couple hours, transferring the business. But we, these are just small town kids that basically own the small town, right? Mm -hmm. Just a fantastic American success story. And we've been together so long, we're like peas and carrots. But I wrote about this in my, my first book, The Art of Preventing Stupid. And they were, this was a critical change to me. This was 12 years ago or so. And we're talking and they said, I just, they had some outside firm come in with this big, from Chicago with this big shebang. This is how you protect your business with this complicated structure and this and that. And I was looking at it and I was talking to the accountant and we're like, this is nonsense. And ultimately I just go, how much insurance do you guys have? And they said, I want a couple million bucks, maybe three, maybe two, I can't remember. And I go, guys, what in the hell are you thinking? You have 30 loaded down Ford 550s out on the road doing service calls. And I have seen the local hospital run up $700,000 in medical bills after a car wreck. Yeah. And $2 million is not going anywhere on that. Right. Oh yeah. And I was, it's, it's okay. We went out, we got insurance stuff. Well, guess what happened six months later? Someone had a car accident. Yeah. And one of our drivers is going down a country highway, no shoulders. And, and by our standards, it's a pretty hilly road. And he hydroplanes and he goes down the side of a semi like this. And he comes out the back into the other lane and hits a, you know, hits a mom and dad in a brand new, literally driving at home from the lot, brand new pickup truck. Oh, wow. And two kids in it. and mom and dad didn't make it. Oh gosh. Oh, gosh. Yeah. Horrible deal. And yeah. And by the way, my client is over in one of the big towns with his chest cut open, having thoracic surgery. He didn't even wrecked for two weeks. Wow. And that's, that's horrible. Yeah. Yeah. It's horrible. It's just sort of gross to talk about. And I don't know how I got off on it in, in the preventative sense. And two weeks later, I drive out to the country and they live out 35 miles outside of town here and knock on the door and he answers. He's a big old boy. And then he's pretty surprised to see his lawyer on Sunday afternoon. And he's going back to work the next day. And I sit down and I tell him what happened. And it's, 
he's got tears running down his face. And I say, I know the first question he asks me is, are the kids going to be okay? I said, the kids are healthy and we got enough insurance to make sure they're taken care of forever. So to speak, but you can't ever replace that. Can't replace family. No. Yeah. And, and ultimately we talk about it and he, uh, you know, he says, is the company going to be okay? And I said, yeah, it's going to be okay. And out of that tragedy, I can look back and I'm like, okay, it was that intervention on the level where we did that in a preventative way really was able to do the best thing we could, which is be able to provide for those kids and also protect the company. And that's why I wrote the art of preventing stupid book is really to start to teach people how you can protect your business, because it's like with the discussion about the insurance, I said, guys, we've got that many people out on the road. It's not a question of if somebody's going to get an accident. It's just a question of when and how yeah. bad. It is. Yeah. And I was a smart ass, which I know is pretty common it, with the title of that book, because it's like, guys, most of the problems we get into in business are unforced errors. And the reason we, me and my firm as lawyers have experience with that is we see it and we see the same errors, the same mistakes come in time after time. And what if, like my mom doing breast cancer screening, what if we would teach people how to prevent those and how to, and how to systematically get in front of the problems so that they're not just sitting in the problem pit and instead as business owners, they're staying in the opportunities out because you're either in one or the other, you're either yep. dealing with an opportunity or you're dealing with the problem. And, True. and so I, I'm really passionate about that. And it's really, and by the way, too, it's really fun for my lawyers, my team to work with people who are are doing stuff and who are building things and to help keep them out of trouble right now. Am I talking too much? No, not at all. This is your story. This is what we want to hear. The other side of an attorney that is not looking for the dollars and being greedy. By the way, so it's not everything I'm saying. It's not entirely altruistic because by the way, when you can get in front with clients and help teach them and help prevent their problems and help keep things streamlined and keep them in the opportunity zone, you're adding a ton of value. And it's Ashley, who's my right-hand lawyer and naturally lives in Portland, Oregon. We, you know, we're doing the general counsel work for this little startup company and they, and we, so we worked with them through all this really in with this spirit and this nature of work and these guys are, they're geologist nerds. They're like hyperspatial reservoir geologists, blah, 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 out of the oil business. And they discovered, or yeah, discovered maybe too strong of a word. They identified, some other people knew it was there too, but they identified an extension of this oil field in South Arkansas that 
we're not talking about oil now. We're talking about lithium because the oh. lithium is dissolved in the salt water down in the oil field. Hmm. Okay. And this is a crazy new idea. So you go 85 miles that way, you start to hit iodine fields and a, a lot of oil wells will produce salt. And that's, by the way, what was causing the earthquakes is the reinjection. But all the iodine in your salt is pulled out of wells out here, 85 miles that way. All the helium that you use is pulled out of gas wells out by Amarillo. Okay. Now, these guys just figured out, hey, here's a bunch of lithium. And that's been really exciting to do and work with those guys. And it's been a great account for us. And we've kept them out of all sorts of problems. We, uh, and, and it was fun. We did what we call the Disney World maneuver, which, you know, I don't know if you guys know this, but when Walt Disney bought Disney World, he set up all these little companies. Yeah. And yeah. all the land before anybody knew what was going on. And then merges it all in. That's what we did. And they got all the leases and we're getting ready to. Ashley's just calling me. We're getting ready to go to market with this company and it's been really fun to do. That's awesome. That's, but see, that's something you don't get to see from a typical attorney. You see them just hitting the billable hours and that's it. And it's always coming in the end when you're in trouble, instead of being proactive, they're being reactive to the situation. Then you're stuck with that. And it's, I wish there was more of you out there. Really. I have to say we have a good outside general counsel. I, I, they're into tech and they're into real estate. They're in the things that we're in, but they started as a very small boutique. And now he's grown, I think he's close to 12 or 14 attorneys too. And he spread across the country also. But we started, I can remember when I started with him, it was just him and his brother was going to law school and he was helping him out and just going one at a time. And that's, and now he's got all these other different attorneys. And it's, that's cool to see that because they truly care. And they want to be in front of stuff. It's just, it's, you guys are rare. It's just, you guys are a, a rare commodity. Thanks. And, and I hope it's becoming more common. And by the way, you know, we've got, of course, the Art of Preventing Stupid book is a good resource. I'm not really hawking the book because I'm not trying to get on any stages, but it, I think it's a good resource. It's the tip of the iceberg of what we do with our, our general counsel clients. And by, by the way, we still do traditional law. And a lot of it, but then we're like, Hey guys, by the way, this is how we could have kept you out of this. And, but the, the main idea we get down to is, is the three-step process. Number one, let's brainstorm smart and brainstorm in, insightfully about what can go wrong, because you're probably familiar with SWOT analysis. Oh yeah. What's our strengths, weaknesses, opportunities, and threats. Let's throw it up on a whiteboard and then come up with a few things. This question, what are our threats? It's not an insightful question. That's not a smart question. Now, what catastrophes can hit my marketing? That's a better question. Or what, what am I ignorant about my competition? That's an insightful question. Or we talk, and we talk about all your problems coming either from catastrophes, your own ignorance, or your own ineptitude. And ineptitude just means you're slacking who you're supposed to be. And we use those three categories to frame questions 
either through the business immune system report, which is what the art of preventing stupid is about, or we also, and that's more systemic about your business or more, we have another subjective, more subjective report, the strong protected business report. And that's the title of my next book, which I haven't decided when it publishes, just the strong protected business because <laughs> I'm busy running a law firm. And, but those reports help frame really insightful questions that then frame up your vulnerabilities because what, one of our taglines is deal with your vulnerabilities so you can capitalize on your opportunities because the people that do are the companies that are the A players on the field because they're not making stupid unforced errors, right? They're, right. And they're the guys that get the opportunities. And okay, so first thing is brainstorm smart. Brainstorm with structure, brainstorm systemically and or subjectively about your business. All this is on davisbusinesslaw.com in the resources tab, all the forms. And then number two, you got to prioritize. And we talk about prioritizing improved, so to speak, the Eisenhower matrix. And what we do is we talk about likelihood and seriousness as the axes, because some problems are so remote. You're not going to get hit by a tornado outside of Phoenix. No. We might. Yes. We'll be in Oklahoma. It's a spectator sport around here. And um, literally, you'll see the, we, back in the day, the law firm I worked for was the attorney for the Twister because they filmed it right up. But the, you, you prioritize, and if it's serious and active threat versus a unserious and unlikely threat, you do the matrix and you frame them up and then develop a plan to deal with it. And by the way, we work with a lot of business coaches that like to use our stuff because yeah. we're basically looking at the negative side of what can go wrong. Let's deal with the threats and weaknesses. You guys go deal with the strengths and opportunities. Our job, again, as attorneys is to deal with your vulnerabilities and it's better if we do it up front. And then ultimately, okay, so step three is you get to a plan and we focus on three things. Number one, get the easy list done. If it takes you five minutes to deal with a medium, unlikely vulnerability, just do it. Just get it off your list. Partly just because it's getting the momentum going. And momentum's something to be said for that. They say the hardest thing is getting started. Getting right? started. Yep. Taking that first step. Yeah. And then two, we talk about, Stephen Covey talks about rocks. What are your projects? What, what do you have to get done? And put that, put that on your list. And that, that dovetails right into strategic planning, whether you're doing EOS or scaling up. I've been talking to these guys who developed a new system called Pinnacle, which is really cool. And, and then three, I thought this was, I was kind of proud of myself about this, is identify the habits that you need to put in place or need to get rid of. And I think that's a really important part of building a strong protected business is being serious with yourself about because that's different than projects ultimately. And I know the habits thing has been pretty pronounced in literature recently from Atomic Habits and there's a couple great books out there about it. And I, I'm sure that influenced my thinking 
the strong protected businesses are the ones that have that, have the good habits and or have gotten rid of the bad habits. I'm soapboxing right now, but I'm, I'm really passionate about teaching businesses how to stay out of trouble, to deal with their vulnerabilities so they can capitalize on their opportunities. Because it's cool to see, man, it's cool to see these people living the American dream yep. and, and making something out of their lives and changing their families' lives for generations. And not so much maybe that they are going to have multi-generational wealth. They've now taught their kids that this is possible. And they can come up with something on their own and start generating and in, in creating entities or businesses there. It just, it's a snowball effect. And I'm with you on that because unfortunately with today's instant gratification piece with social media, and we could go down a whole note rabbit hole with that is the hard work piece is gone. They think if you put out a TikTok or an Instagram or a YouTube short, whatever, that it's supposed to go viral and you're supposed to be a millionaire overnight. And that just, it doesn't work that way. You have to, I joke about it is I'm an eight year overnight success. I've had two failed businesses, 25 years in corporate America and corporate America didn't teach me how to fish. It kept me fat and happy. So I failed at two businesses on my own because I didn't know how to fish. So I had to relearn how to fish in, or actually not relearn, learn how to fish. And that's life. I have a, we all have failures. You just got to get back up and move forward. Yeah. <laughs> Amen to that. I'm laughing because one of the books I always talk about is Harvey McKay's Swim with the Sharks Without Getting Eaten Alive. And one of the great lines he's got in there is, I can't believe how stupid I was two weeks ago. Yeah. And I, mean, I feel that way every dang day because I were, I know my body of work, but running a business is a different route, particularly growing one and particularly scaling one. And you said eight years and people will tell you it's five to seven years to make a business successful and sustaining. And I say, don't count on the five, count on the seven. Count on, and, count on the eight, count on, on, on the rest of it. And even with the eight years going, we're not sustainable yet because I just added another mix last year to a nonprofit. So now I'm, I'm learning the nonprofit world, which I'm, if you haven't been, if you don't see it, I'm not conventional and people say, you can't run a nonprofit like a for-profit. Sure. I can. Why can't I? What stops me from doing that? Because ultimately the nonprofit is for us and our clients are unbankable. They can't get credit. So we have to teach them the basics of credit and crawling and getting through that industry. Nonprofits don't do that. Nonprofits just want to push you through a system, get you to check the boxes and move on. I want to educate people. I, I want to be able to give them the tools to succeed in life. And people say, oh, you can't do that. Sure, I will. Watch me. Yeah, you can. Incidentally, the Goodwill Industries is a nonprofit corporation. Sure do. Yeah. Yeah. I've moved many times in my life and I've donated a lot of things and get the donation cards. And back in the day, they used to fill it out for you. Now it's you're on your own. Yeah. Just give you an empty card and that's it. And there you go. So it's businesses, like you said, is it's running a business and scaling. It is totally different than going after a passion or like you said, practicing law. Now you've got a business and now you have an entity that you have to pretty much manage on a daily basis. And, and you have to be an attorney. You got to be a leader. You got to be a manager. You got to be a cheerleader. There's so many different hats you have to wear 
But at the end of the day, as long as you're doing something that you're passionate about and that fire stays there, you'll continue to flourish and grow. But once again, like you said, you got to be prepared for those instances where you're looking at your weaknesses all the time and being able to adjust or get rid of them because ultimately that'll be your demise. Yep. Yeah. And businesses that do that, man, they just kill it. They just absolutely kill it. Matt, it has been wonderful to have you on it. We've been 50 minutes here and, and I could say we could keep on talking before we end up where are you guys, what States are you practicing? Are you practicing in all 50 States or are you guys specific to certain States? No, we just operate mainly on what we call the South Plains. So we've got office in Kansas City. So that's Kansas City, Kansas and Missouri. We do a little in Colorado and we'll probably go to Colorado here next year or so. And then Arkansas, Oklahoma, and Texas, or as we like to call it, Baja. <laughs> I like that. They, 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 they are not amused at all with that comment. I'm sure they're not. I'm sure that gets them uh, a little hot under the collar. Where can people find you? Which website? Yes, DavisBusinessLaw.com. And again, we've got a lot of the stuff I was talking about in forums up on the resources tab. And my email is mdavis at DavisBusinessLaw. Just wants to pick my brain, ask me a couple of questions. That's great. And I'll put all the con I'll put your information and your website in the show notes so people can get a hold of you guys. Sounds great. Hey, I appreciate it. It was really fun being on it. Thank you, Matt, for coming on. It's been entertaining, but also enlightening that there is a good attorney in this world. Got it. Thank you. And it's now Taco Thursday, so I'm going to get some tacos. <laughs> Have a good one. Okay. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.